Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Walk through any grocery store and you'll find countless items with interesting backstories. Cornflakes, for example, were invented by John Harvey Kellogg and his brother as a way to curb one's, uh, passions. They were bland and flavorless, exactly what lustful patients at his sanatorium needed to keep their hands off each other and themselves. And thanks to botanist William Hughes's work in South America during the 17th century, people all over America and Europe now enjoy piping hot cups of cocoa every winter. But before one particular item showed up in grocery stores and farmers' markets, it stood as a symbol for wealth and aristocracy. It was discussed as though it had been handcrafted by the House of Fabergé itself for those privileged enough to afford it. This item originally hailed from South America, where the Tupinamba people grew and ate it. According to an English translation of André Tevez's 1568 original French account, The New Found World, it was called Hoiriri. But these things were notoriously difficult to transport, making the rare few that found their way to Europe prohibitively expensive. Christopher Columbus had encountered them back in the late 1400s, and had even tried to grow his own once he returned to Spain, but failed. These fruits could only be grown in a tropical climate. It wasn't until the mid-1600s when John Evelyn, an English gardener, discovered the key to growing hoiriris in local hothouses. His efforts proved uh, fruitful, but were expanded upon by a later gardener around 1720. However, despite England's success at growing them by the 18th century, hoiriris hadn't shed their exorbitant price tags due to the level of care it took to cultivate them. Royal monarchs and the upper class hired gardeners to grow the elusive fruits. They also spent unfathomable amounts of money for the privilege of eating what few could get their hands on. Rich Americans living in the colonies at the time also treated the hoiriri as a status symbol. They brought theirs in from the Caribbean, rather than Europe, and paid the equivalent of about $8,000 today, just to display them in their homes. And that's right. Due to their high price tags and difficulty in importing them, colonists didn't eat them right away. They were centerpieces, something for guests to admire during parties and formal gatherings. It wasn't until they started rotting when the fruits would be carved up and eaten. For those who couldn't afford to buy one outright, a booming rental business popped up allowing the less affluent to lease one for the night to show off to friends and family. The following day, the item would be returned to the merchant for someone else to rent next. It didn't matter that they didn't own it, because for one evening, the average person could feel like royalty and make their peers jealous at the same time. Now, just looking at the hoiriri, one wouldn't think that they were all that glamorous. Their exteriors are brown, hard, and spiky. A tall collection of green waxy leaves springs from the top like an eruption frozen in time. They were unbecoming, but their rarity made them coveted among society's elite. For over 200 years, the hoiriri was also featured in patterns that appeared on fabrics, wallpapers, and furniture. Those who couldn't have the real thing settled for copies carved or printed onto other surfaces. And then in 1900, one man figured out a way to bring that beloved fruit to the masses. His name was James Dole, an American industrialist who had moved out to Honolulu, Hawaii one year earlier to start his business. With just $16,000 to his name, 
James bought himself a 64-acre farmland on the island of Oahu, where he started growing hoiriris. Within seven years, he was canning and packing them for distribution throughout the United States. He grew his modest operation into a massive plantation, sadly by exploiting foreign labor by paying them the lowest wages possible. And those ruthless business practices eliminated nearly all of his competitors and turned his Dole Food Company into one of the most successful corporations in the world. But nobody today knows what a hoiriri is, despite its importance throughout history. That's because Andre Teve didn't have another name for it at the time that he wrote his account. But based on the clues he left, historians believe he actually had encountered a fruit found in many foods we enjoy today, including sangria, upside-down cakes, and, you better believe it, occasionally on pizza. The fruit was the pineapple. There are some coincidences that seem too wild to be ignored. The kinds of coincidences where you have to wonder if there are other forces at play. Like, for instance, how Stephen Hawking just happens to share his birth and death date with Galileo and Albert Einstein. Or how Violet Jessup survived not one, or even two, but three major ocean liner sinkings. Then there are other coincidences, of absolutely no consequence whatsoever, having nothing to do with life or death, but are all still remarkably unexplainable. That's the kind of coincidence that 19th century poet Emile Deschamps found himself in. A star poet of his time, Deschamps found his inspiration in Victor Hugo, and his writing would earn the praise of Napoleon himself. Yet words would not be able to describe what was set in motion the day Deschamps was first introduced to plum pudding. Now, when Deschamps was still a teenager, he happened upon an English immigrant with the curious name of Monsieur de Forgevou. There is very little known about this person, but the one thing he is known for is being the man who took it upon himself to show Emile Deschamps the wonder of the very English dessert called plum pudding. It turns out Deschamps liked it. He didn't love it per se, but he did enjoy it. And after that, he bid Forgebu adieu, and the two go on their separate ways, not even a notable stop on the timeline in either of their lives. But fast forward 10 years. Now in the throes of his poetry accolades, the champ was walking through Paris, taking in the sights. He was looking for a snack, something to satiate his cravings, when he passed a French restaurant and checked the menu. And there it was. Plum pudding. The champ proceeded to go into the restaurant and order the pudding, only to be told that, unfortunately, sir, the last had just been sold. But the waiter called out into the restaurant, Monsieur de Forgebou, would you be willing to share your plum pudding with this gentleman? And sure enough, there in the back of the restaurant was the man who had introduced Deschamps to the plum pudding in the first place. And they met again over plum pudding in a situation that must have given them both a good laugh. Fast forward several more years, and Deschamps found himself at a dinner party socializing with his circle of close friends. At some point, though, the host stepped into the room and announced that dessert was about to be served. And if you have any doubts as to what that dessert would be, you're clearly not listening. In a most improbable happenstance, that dessert is the very English plum pudding. Now, I know what you're wondering, but where was Monsieur de Forgebou and was Deschamps thinking about him? Which is when the doorbell rang and the host announced the arrival of a new guest, none other than Monsieur de Forgebou. Deschamps, as you might imagine, was blown away. Sure, the years had taken their toll on both of these men, 
But the Champs recognized the paragon of plum pudding, standing right there in the flesh. Only de Forgebout did not stay long. It only took a moment before he realized that he had arrived at the wrong apartment. He had been invited to a dinner party for sure, but it wasn't that one. And so he turned to leave, unaware that the dessert about to be served was the very dessert he so strongly advocated for all those years ago. It would be, however, the last time the two men would see each other alive. An amazing string of coincidences and a fantastic set of stories. There's no way to explain them, but at least we get to enjoy them now. And I think we can at least agree on exactly how to classify such random, coincidental meetings. Utterly curious. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.